the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. I don't know, I don't know what's happened in our world. Everybody's bringing home a trophy. You lost? That's wonderful. You got a trophy for it? That's precious, sweetheart. That's messed up. That's what that is. But you get the idea. It's not like, oh, if you bring them the trophy, then I'll love you more. No, there's, it's not a performance-oriented thing, and neither is it with our Heavenly Father. He loves us for who we are, just because of who we are. It's an unconditional love that is not gained or merited or maintained because of anything we do or don't do. It is His unconditional love towards us. Jesus should always be the central focus of your worship. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he shares with you the importance of keeping Christ at the center. Sometimes people can have a tendency to make the Holy Spirit the most important person of the Trinity. However, Pastor Gary explains to you that the Holy Spirit's role is to testify of Jesus. His role is to empower you to know and become more like Christ. Jesus is to be the main focus. Make Jesus Christ central to your worship. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 15 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Here in John 15, starting at verse 9, uh, we're going to see the word love. Jesus says here, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remember the context, uh, 14 chapters, 14, 15, 16, 17 are, are Jesus' words that he gives in what is called the upper room discourse, where he is meeting with his disciples, breaking bread for the last Passover, just before he's going to be crucified. This is within a 24-hour a distance from this time until he's actually going to be crucified. So what we're going to read here are some very important parting words of Jesus to his own disciples. But in the larger sense, what he's saying to his disciples applies to all of us because they might have been his disciples, capital D. We are his disciples, followers, uh, small d. But nevertheless, these words are important for us as well. And he's going to talk here about love. It is in, in the Greek agapeo, to love with a supreme love. The Greeks were brilliant in the way that their language depicts love in, in four different ways. We have one word in English for love, and it's love. And unfortunately, it gets used in very different ways. You can talk about how much you love your husband or you love your wife, and in the same breath, you can say you love ice cream. Very different kinds of love. 
But nevertheless, it is one word to describe those two affections. In the Greek, they have four different words. They have one word, agapeo, which means the supreme love that really, biblically speaking, is only achieved through knowing Christ. It's the deepest kind of love. And then they have another word, of course, eros, which is uh, where we get our English word erotic, and that speaks of a sexual or a sensual love. They have uh, storge, which is a family, a familial love for your immediate family. And then they have phileo, which is a brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia, named after that, the city of brotherly shove. That's really what it is, but it's the city of brotherly love. But if you're from Philly, you know what I'm talking about. So when Jesus here speaks of love, he's speaking of the deepest, most supreme kind of love that is found in knowing him. And it is the kind of love that he expresses towards us and that he challenges us here in this passage that we should express towards one another. In fact, he's he's going to really put the standard out here and he's going to tell us that we need to love each other in the way that he has loved us. And that's pretty challenging. Look what he says here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The word love is going to appear ten times here in chapter 15 from this point on. He says, now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So take note that that one of the ways we express our love for God is by obeying God. He says, if you really love me, you're going to do what I say. You're going to obey my commands. Anybody can say, I love you, but lip service doesn't mean anything. You have to demonstrate love by action. Love love is an action verb. And Jesus says here, if you love me, you'll obey what I command and remain in my love in that sense then. In verse 11, he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Please circle the word command. This is not a suggestion, friends. This is a command. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. It's a very challenging thing that he says there. And so in order for us to know how we are to love each other, we have to first answer the question, how has he loved us? Because if we understand how God loves us, then it translates into how we are to love each other. Because this is his command. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so in order to answer the question, how does God love us? It should lead then to the second question, and therefore, how should we love others? And I'm going to give you three words that typically define the love of the Lord towards us. And the first word is sacrificially. And it really is found here in the next verse where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, of course, he's referring to himself, that he will go to the cross and he's going to lay down his life for his friends. He's going to tell them in a minute, I call you friends because I've communicated everything to you. Friends tell each other everything. He says, I I no longer treat you as servants or slaves. Because a master doesn't communicate openly with, with the, the servants who are subjected to him. But he says on a level of friendship, I'm, I'm telling you everything. I'm telling you everything. And he says, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And he, Jesus, demonstrated the greatest love because he laid down his life. It's sacrificial. Of course, that's also John 3.16, isn't it? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So it's, it's an, a, a very sacrificial love that Jesus displayed towards us. Now, what does that mean for us? Because he says, as I have loved you, so you must love each other. I mean, you know, in the most chivalrous sense, I suppose, every man should be prepared to die for his wife or for his kids. But on a very uh, practical level, it isn't necessarily on a day-to-day basis that we're going to be dying for each other. But think of sacrifice in terms of its purest sense. Love that is sacrificial means that you are more concerned about the well-being of the other than you are yourself. That's sacrificial. A selfish love is when it's all about yourself and all about your own needs rather than being more concerned and caring about the needs of others. So love should be sacrificial. Jesus says, as I've loved you, I'm sacrificing everything for you. We should love each other in a sacrificial way where it's not a self-centered love. It's not a selfish love. It is a selfless love. It is an emptying of self. It is a consideration of others that we love instead of ourselves, loving others in mind, not self. Love yields to another. Real love yields to another. Jesus says, as he's loved sacrificially, so we should sacrificially love each other. Then another word that describes the love of Jesus is unconditionally. He loves us unconditionally. And uh, in Romans 5, 6 to 8, Paul says this, he says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice that. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you have to have unconditional love if you're going to die for messed up people. In other words, Paul's saying, you know, once in a while somebody might die for a really decent person, but very rarely would anyone ever die for someone who was ungodly and sinful. And Paul says there in Romans 5, 6, 8, yet that's what Christ has done for us. So when we speak of the unconditional love of Jesus, what we mean is it's not that he just condones our immoral or sinful behavior. And so I just love you unconditionally, which sometimes is a skewed understanding of the love of God. So sometimes we practice what I call sloppy agape because because instead of holding a friend accountable because you know they're in deliberate willful sin, it's wrong to just say, well, you know what, bro? Sis, you know, I mean, God loves you, bro. You know, I know, I know you're sleeping around with your girlfriend. I know, I know you're messing around. I know you're cheating the company. But you know what, man? There's grace to go around. God loves you. No, that's not the kind of unconditional love. It's not that Jesus looks upon our sinful behavior and applauds it or condones it. But it is to say this. Unconditional love means we didn't do anything to gain his love, nor do we do anything to maintain his love. That he loves us just because he loves us. Let me just talk to you for a minute, just like it's you and me. Those of you, God bless you with a Catholic background, all right? <laughs> and I know who you are, and you know who you are, because you've told, you've told me your stories. And there's, there's a lot of folks with that background who have this thought that the love of God is conditional in the sense that God will love me when I, when I really do what is good and when I mess up. God doesn't love me anymore. And it's very connected to a conditional relationship. 
Now, again, that isn't to say that we should just live our lives recklessly and sinfully and just, you know, fall back on the grace and the love of the Lord. But it is to say that it is not a performance oriented. It is not a performance gained or maintained love that God has for us. He loves us just because he loves us. Think about for your own kids, if you're parents, you don't love your kids more or less based on, you know, their performance for you as a parent. Well, you know, if, if, if you win this contest, if you bring home the trophy, you know, I'm going to love you more. First of all, that's not a very good example because nowadays everybody brings home a trophy. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's happened in our world. Everybody's bringing home a trophy. You lost? That's wonderful. You got a trophy for it? That's precious, sweetheart. That's messed up. That's what that is. But you get the idea. It's not like, oh, if you bring home the trophy, then I'll love you more. No, there's, it's not a performance-oriented thing, and neither is it with our Heavenly Father. He loves us for who we are, just because of who we are. It's an unconditional love that is not gained or merited or maintained because of anything we do or don't do. It is his unconditional love towards us. Third way that he, that he loves us, and then we'll circle back and talk about how this translates in our love towards each other. He loves us eternally. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have led you with cords of kindness. God's love is an everlasting love. In other words, it it doesn't like run out. Like I will love you until. That's not the way God deals with us. I will love you until. And uh, like number two, this unconditional love, it's not that God is like, I will love you if. Okay, it's unconditional. It's not I will love you until. It's eternal. Then I'm convinced that that even after the day of judgment in the great white throne and he separates the sheep from the goat and then he casts those into the lake of fire who have rejected him and rebelled against him, I, I still am convinced that the heart of God is broken. He does not delight, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked. He is, he is continually heartbroken for those who have rejected him and he loves us with an everlasting love if we respond to him or don't. It breaks his heart if we don't, but he still loves us. Because God is love. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now, how does this translate for us? Well, okay, again, sacrificially. We should love each other thinking of others more than we think of ourselves. Unconditionally. Too many times we put conditions on loving each other. uh, And we treat each other like you have to perform in order for you to get my favor or my affection and Really, this should be an unmerited, unconditional love. In 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul writes about the qualities that describe love, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. And then he talks about it is not self-seeking. It is not self-seeking. It is, it is to be an unconditional love that is not about self And you will get a glimpse of the definition of unconditional love when you think about how you want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved unconditionally, but we're not as eager to love others as unconditionally as we want to be loved. But if you would think to yourself, this is how I really would like to be loved. I need grace. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. Then I should extend grace and mercy and forgiveness because I should love others the way that I want to be loved. And then, of course, eternally. In other words, just in the sense that love doesn't have a time limit. You know, I will love you until. 
Uh, God doesn't put a time limit on His love. And so the love that He wants, He just simply says here, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He repeats it again in verse 17. Just glance down to verse 17. He says, this is my command, love each other. Again, it is a command. Now, by the way, you know, this is an obvious my wife calls me Captain Obvious sometimes. This is an obvious thing, but I'm going to point it out anyway. It's a command, therefore it won't come naturally. If it came naturally, Jesus wouldn't say, I command you to do this. It is not always natural or convenient for us to love each other. People are different. And the differences can sometimes be the rub in a relationship. And you can look at that, those differences within a family. You can look at those differences within a church, within your office. I mean, there's constant differences. But loving each other means that we recognize that every single person is loved by God, and therefore, as I am loved by Him, I should love one another. Putting aside the differences, putting aside you know, all those things that might you know, either endear us to one another or, or uh, cause friction with one another, put aside differences to express love for each other. May the, may the world get a glimpse of Jesus by the way that the church loves one another. Amen? Love one another. Verse 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Notice this, verse 16. All you Calvinists are going to love this verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I mean, this is a reference to God's election. It talks about how you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go. That's, a, that's the idea of you need to go in the world, witness, bear fruit. You need to be a part of, of the kingdom work that I called you to. Um, so, you know, this. whenever we get into certain passages of the Scripture where it leans one way or another, then, then I'll emphasize the way that it leans. This way leans in the direction of election with the, the, the idea in mind that God has chosen us. Now, you know, the Bible says that we're chosen according to his foreknowledge so then you get into this big debate is does he choose us randomly or does he choose us according to how he knows we've we're going to choose him so you know you can you can take that out in the fellowship hall and argue that and then love each other afterwards i don't really care you know nevertheless i'm thankful to know that i'm chosen and if you're sitting here going i wonder if i'm chosen receive him as jesus then you're chosen that's how it works you know i wonder if i'm chosen you know jesus yes then you are. Do you want to know Jesus? Yes. Then you are. Let's move on. And this is my command. Again, he wraps up this section. This is my command. Love each other. Now, verse 18. Now he's going to go from the word love to the word hate. The word hate is going to appear seven times in the rest of this chapter. Seven times. And it is a strong word. Because when I looked up the Greek, it actually does mean detest. Now we're going from love to hate, but he's, but he's, he's painting the picture here of where you're going to experience hate. 
and he talks about the hatred of the world. Now, this is the world, not the world in general, but the world that doesn't believe in him. It's not that everybody's going to hate you, but the world that rejects Christ will hate you. He says it to us. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Okay, now, he's going to answer later why. Because as soon as you read that, at least I did, you know, when he says here, keep in mind that it hated me first. If I were one of his disciples and I'm hearing him talk to me like this, you know, in the day when he's saying all this for the first time, I'd probably be sitting there thinking to myself, and, and really, why does the world hate you? I mean, he said, if the world hates you, just keep in mind that it hated me first. Why does the world hate you, Jesus? I mean, all you've ever done is gone around healing people. You healed people. You raised a couple people from the dead. You fed thousands of people. You performed miracles. You loved people who were the most unlovely and the outcasts and the rejects of the world. Why would people hate anybody who does all those wonderful things? You're healing, you're, you're feeding, you're, you're bringing grace to people, you're, you're, you're telling a woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, and where are your condemners? Nowhere, neither do I condemn you. You're, you're expressing grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and all of this. Why in the world would people hate you? He's going to answer it at the end, so hold on. He says in verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. You have to ask yourself, all of us do, if the world that doesn't believe in Jesus really likes me a lot, then what is my life looking like? I mean, just think that through. Jesus says, okay, the world's going to hate you because it hated me first. And the reason that the world's going to hate you is because you don't belong to the world. So then you have to just logically ask yourself, well, if the world really thinks I'm dandy, then I might look a lot like them. So if there's no contrast, there won't be any hatred. But where there's a life that is contrasting the rest of the world that rejects Christ, you can have some people that just flat out don't like you. So he says, just be prepared for that. He says, remember, verse 20, the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Notice that. He's basically saying if you have greater knowledge, you have greater accountability. The reason why the people of Jesus' day were accountable was because they were exposed to greater knowledge. They were exposed to a greater light. And they rejected the light and they refused the knowledge that was imparted to them with Jesus right there in their midst. And therefore, they were more accountable. In verse 23, he who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. There's your answer. Why would somebody hate Jesus? For no reason at all. They just hated him. And you might find that there are people who don't like you and they won't even be able to tell you why they don't like you. 
In fact, they might even say to you, you know what, I just frankly don't like you. I don't even know why. I just don't like you. Now, you don't have to raise your hand like, mm-hmm, that's my coworker. Yes, you're preaching about me. But there will be some people just act like that. They, you haven't done anything. But they just won't like you. You know why? Because they can see Jesus in you. And if they don't love Jesus, they're not going to like you. And yet they won't even be able to put their finger on why it is they don't like you. It's just that you exude the presence of the, of the Lord, and therefore there's something about you that rubs them the wrong way, and now they just don't like you. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know